Welcome to this episode of the Comedy Defects Podcast. My name is Winter, I'm a comedian, and this is my show. Those that are new to the show, welcome. Those that are old to the show, thanks for coming back, guys. Happy New Year to you all as well. I hope you had a good Christmas break and a good New Year and you made plans for January. I made a couple of plans in December because things were kind of like getting a bit quiet, to be fair, on all fronts. Being a freelancer, kind of you know, the gigging economy is up to, you know, everything slows down, your work slows down. So I made plans and a couple of those things are taken off at the end of January. But I was terrified, you know, as you are, it's being a freelancer, you don't know where it's going to, next paycheck's going to come from. So you're just trying to get things moving, get things moving. And it's kind of feeling like an actual proper year. I don't know about you or anyone else, but for me, it feels like I'm kind of back on it again. I'm kind of getting get back into the rhythm of life again. Because after the big pause, I know a lot of these episodes are, are very COVID uh, <laughs> lockdown related. But I think that it's... Uh, you know, kind of nice to look back and kind of just see where we were and where we are now. I mean, me personally, I'm starting to feel a bit more like myself again, a bit like, you know, my life is actually, I'm sort of in control of it somehow, apart from the bit of an egg shortage here in Tesco's every time I go down there. But anyway, that's another story. I don't know why. I'm not going to pay 29p for one single egg. I'm not going to do that. That's I don't care how big those eggs are. I'm not paying 29p for an egg, okay? Anyway, go to the Indian shops. They're way cheaper down there. They got loads of eggs. Anyway, I'm digressing. This episode was recorded in the lockdown with an excellent comedian, Dave Bailey. He's on Instagram, he's on Twitter, he's on Facebook as Dave Bailey Comedian. Dave Bailey Comic on Twitter, so go and check him out there. He also does his own podcast called the Mind Fart Podcast, and that's a musical podcast. Go check that out. I'm not going to say any more now, but I'm going to say is I hope you had a happy January and it was a good start to the new year. It's I know January's pretty bleak, but you know what? I hope you got through it and like you know you kind of like started those resolutions, you kind of got on it and kind of like made some progress towards the goals that are going to be happening this year. I know that I've kind of made a good start. I hope you did too. This is an excellent episode, 106, with Dave Bailey comic on Twitter. So go and check it out. If you ever see him in a bill, you will not be disappointed. He's a very funny guy. So Dave Bailey, so Dave Bailey for episode 106. Enjoy. What is your day job then, Dave? So <laughs> it's really interesting. I hope you're not recording this. Even even for a podcast, this right. is tedious. Uh, <laughs> You know when you complain to your insurance company? Yeah. So if you remain unhappy, it then comes to me. Right. And then I can step in and say, actually, no, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Okay. So like you're sort of like the uh, the mediator uh, between insurance company and customer if it's still not resolved, right? Yeah, we're kind of like a last stop to stop someone going to the ombudsman. Oh, so right. Step in, review everything, listen to all the phone calls. Okay. And go, actually... Yeah. yeah, whichever way it falls, yeah? Uh, yeah, because it costs companies if they go to the ombudsman, so they kind of think it's cheaper to have people like us around. Oh, I can tell you what kind of comp you should be getting in a heartbeat, yeah, whether it's 50 quid or 500 quid. Or... Nice. That's good, man. So but yeah, thanks to that, I uh, there's a budget for like equipment, so that when we started working from home, do you guys mm. need anything? It's like a shopping list. You go, I, I'll have one of those. Yeah. I'll have some of those. And how long have you done that for? Uh four or five years it's a blessing at the moment age eh, of working from home and that oh god yeah i mean i dreading going back into an office it's just so good to like my commute is literally to the front room <laughs> the best when you work in the office were you in like cubicles and stuff or like separate things like typical office just board dividing you oh it's uh open planned which is even oh, worse yeah 
I was just thinking, I was the other day I said to someone, I've got to the point now, I don't know about you, but I even miss the people that used to annoy me. Yeah, just for the sake of getting out of the house. I went to the dentist the other day and like I booked this appointment like a year ago and I was just like, I got dressed up for it, man. I was like, oh, well, like, you know, <laughs> I was like, I was so excited, man. I was like, the dentist asked me how I was and I was like, I was talking for 15 minutes. She's like, actually, I just I actually meant to ask you how your teeth were. I was like, okay then, all right then. <laughs> Yeah. When you say dressed up, are we like in speedos and a bow tie? Well, usually I go like in tracksuit bottoms and like just like a hoodie or something, you know. But this time I went in jeans. I was like, I like I, I kind of made the effort, you know. I like had a shower. <laughs> Dentist usually, I just turn up in anything, you know what I mean. I got dogs, so I go walk the dogs. I turn up in like covered in mud and stuff. I want to have boots on, but you know what I mean, like just uh, you know the stuff you kind of wear around the house that you can't do stuff. I mean, yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, I don't know. About- you but i find i found that comedians generally we are not really part of the role is we're observing we're not really fond of um of people general we kind yeah. of one step back and like to observe things but even i think even us now are going well oh, i miss just the general public being yeah. around yeah I know that usually you just get all your social interaction at, at a gig and that was like about 50, 50 to 80 people perhaps in a, a room above a pub You're like oh that's great <laughs> all at once listening to my stories <laughs> and now it's like still at home with the dog do you uh, live with anyone Dave? no I'm a single at the moment well have been since yeah, yeah. since lockdown started so have you like kind of Start to uh, anthropomorphize various objects yet, or uh, <laughs> got a football with like some uh, some like grass and top of it, drawn a face on it. Anything? <laughs> Have you been watching Castaway? <laughs> yeah, of course, mate. <laughs> like about ten years ago. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah. no, although my youngest nephew did ask me if I talk to myself. I think he was concerned because I was I live alone. He's like, so do you talk to yourself during the day? I thought. Yeah, but I did that before this. A human thing, isn't it? You suddenly hmm. talk to no one that's there. But what about you? I find this third lockdown the toughest. The other two were kind of all right. Yeah. Now it's getting ridiculous. I did find the same. I was like, I just, motivation was really tough. I even turned to self-help for this one. I've had a book in the corner of the room called Getting Things Done. Uh, it's written by David Allen. I had that and I was like, I will not read that. I do not need to read it. I'm pretty motivated. I don't need to. And I was like, right, it's third lockdown. I was like, right, I need to read this book. I'm going to just get it done. It's really annoying me. And uh, so I had a plan, put a plan on the wall of all the things I got to do. And I'm slowly getting through it, like, you know, but it's um, finished the book, but had a list of things to do now. So it's like, I don't know if it's helped me. It's just kind of made, I guess, get everything out of your head onto the page. And then you can like just feel the judgment of that page every day, slowly destroying your self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> that's why books are overrated shouldn't read them this, they're dangerous they're dangerous Too much knowledge. yeah I think yeah I mean I, I, I really liked school I know that's quite a rare thing for a comedian to say yeah. or anyone to say where did you go but to school I went to school uh, in a little village called Who H-O-O-O right. but I grew up in Leicester mm. in the late 80s early 90s mm. and this again perhaps is the comedian in me I never took school seriously. <laughs> to me, school was kicking about with my mates, having a laugh, mm. and then doing some work if I was told to by a teacher. And so I kind of missed that kind of... I was saying to a friend, you know all this, have you done a lot of socially distanced walking with friends? I really like it. It's like being a kid again, where you just go out and hang out 
Yeah. And that's all you're doing. It's not like you're going to like a wedding or some kind of social engagement where you have to do a thing and you don't actually get to hang out with your friend or you go to see a, I don't know, a film or something. You don't actually speak to your friend. If you go for a walk, it's just you and your friend and just a random conversation. You think, oh, I forgot. This is what friendships used to be. It's just, David, can we go out? And then you just spend the day doing nothing, really. Drinking, eating, just staring at the wall. We watch a film, anything. Yeah, that's it. Otherwise, like you get to the you get, you get to a stage. I feel like even b- before lockdown, I was like, you go, you gotta go somewhere. Where, why am I going there? Okay, I've gotta go maybe go re- record a podcast or go to a gig. There was always a purpose. Now it's just as you say. There's a nice uh, bit of sort of like just take it easy. Just as you know. There's nothing, you can't do anything. <laughs> did you start doing drama there as well? Or did you like have any idea you can do comedy? Well, the, I went to a comp, right? We had a drama department. Yeah. But the drama department was a depressed PE teacher <laughs> who used to drink in the lesson. And one of my earliest memories of it, being told that I was shy, basically, and then realizing, oh, I don't think I am. I think I'm just choosy. Like, I'd be quite quiet in class, so I certainly wasn't a class clown or anything like that. I would be more the person writing for the clown. (laughs) So I would write something down, and then they would say it loud. Or I would say something reacting to what a teacher had said. The Mm. person next to me would then say it out loud. Nice. Or I'd be in a little group in the corner with, like, three or four mates, and I'd say something just for them to make those people laugh. Because, I mean, this sounds like a serial killer now, but that's because I knew I could make my three friends laugh. Whereas mm. if I said this out loud, those people over there are going to be confused. That yeah. person isn't going, to get, isn't going to get the joke. The teacher's going to be pissed off. So I was already working out, like, I'm just going to play to my audience. These are the people I care about. These three people here, I'll just make them laugh. That's fine. But yeah, the drama, I can make it very clearly, as I say, the teacher wasn't in charge of the class. So everyone was mucking about, literally chairs out of windows, people just getting up and leaving. And over the course of a term, we had to come up with a play. So obviously, we didn't do that because we were just kids mucking about and no teacher was in charge. On the day we had to do the play, I stood up and improvised a play. And I, to this day, I think that's where the stand-up started, when I suddenly realised, oh, I can do this. Mm. And I was literally telling other kids, moving other kids, they were reacting to what I was saying, but I was just in complete control of it. And at the end of it, the teacher went, that was improvised, wasn't it? Hmm. I mean, yeah, because obviously you could tell that no other, other people weren't even trying, and hmm. like, none of I wasn't expecting any of you to do a play, and you managed to just do that. Yeah. And then I did that a couple more times, but because of the comp and the way it was, it wasn't encouraged. It was just they had to have a drama department, right? But I look back now and go, oh, well, that was probably a quite a pivotal moment of just mm. like, oh, this is a thing that apparently I can do, and comes quite naturally to me. Yet others. Well, I can still see the faces of the kids going, oh, where's this come from? He's usually really quiet. <laughs> and suddenly I'm centre of attention. Yeah, that's great. Just waiting for your moment, you know, like just observing and now's the time. Here we go. Yeah, definitely. And also that feeling of, I don't know about you, you know that bit, it's, it's the bit I miss, I'm missing a lot at the moment. That bit, 30 seconds before your name gets called at mm. a gig. I've never, this is double negative now, I've never not done a gig where when my name's about to be called, I think, what are you doing, Dave? This is insane. Why are you about to go up there and try and be funny? Yeah. And then the moment I get to the mic and say something and get the first laugh, I think, oh, this is this is where I'm supposed to be. This mm. just feels completely natural now. But kind of glad that I have that little... To me, that means 
that's a healthy thing. As a human, you should be going, just yeah. checking in with yourself, going, are you aware you're about to do this? <laughs> just checking. That's fine. If you want to do yeah. this, that's fine. But I'm just checking you're aware of what's about to happen. Yeah. Which is why when a lot of people go, oh, I don't know how you, you must be so brave. You mean you must have had that. Yeah. It's always an awkward conversation, isn't it? It's like, I'm not brave. I'm quite selfish and arrogant yeah. to want to do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, it's the worst nightmare. I can't think of anything worse. That's mm. things what makes us slightly different as comedians. It's like, no, but we like that. We like that adrenaline, that stepping over the cliff edge of like, well, let's see what happens now. Are your instinctive um, brains going, you know, this is not natural. You shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing this. All these threats are looking at you and could cause you harm mentally and emotionally, isn't it? Really, that's what it is. And you go, oh, yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do it. Cause, you know what? Because I like to walk to the edge and see how if I'm going to go over. Um, so you're, you've been nominated for the BBC Comedy Award like twice. Uh, yes, well, to a degree, yeah. I got through to the competition. With observational storytelling and improv. Do you remember the first joke that you, you wrote before for all that? So I'm really into my music. Mm. So in my teenage years, comedy and music, those are the two things, and football as well, but mainly music and comedy. Yeah. I worked out very quickly that comedy is something more natural to me. Music, I get confused. It doesn't... I don't know how it works, basically. I can mm. play a few chords, but it doesn't. it's too much hard work. So I chose comedy. I wanted to be a DJ. So I um, did some work experience for BBC Southeast Radio. I got a qualification in sound engineering. And then I got rejection letters from pretty much every radio station in the country. So I was doing hospital radio, which is as depressing as it sounds. Is that in... Literally next to the morgue. <laughs> Where was that uh, hospital? Uh, Maidstone Hospital in Kent. Right. And I used to do a show on a Sunday afternoon, mm. and it was a sports show. So basically just go through the football results, basically. I did it with someone else, and he went off to be a journalist, and they asked me, basically because no one else wanted to do it, if I wanted to do the show on my own. Mm. I started doing it. I did it for about a year, and I realised I was essentially doing stand-up. So I was there was a microphone, I was telling jokes, but it was so frustrating that I can't hear the laughter. Of course. I know that joke's funny, but I'm just a man in a room talking to myself. So out of frustration, I filled in the um, BBC Comedy Awards thing, went into the production studio thing, recorded five minutes of stand-up of just random ideas I've had for years, like mm. since I was a kid. Recorded it, burnt it onto a CD. That's how far back we're going. Sent it off, thought nothing more about it. Then about six months later, me and my flatmate at the time came back uh, we had a voicemail and it was someone from the BBC saying, oh, congratulations, you're through to the BBC New Comedy Awards. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I've now got to do this. <laughs> and my mate, to be fair, my mate picked up the phone, rang the number and said, tell them you're doing it. Yeah. So I rang back. And then it was in wines, uh, wine, some kind of wine bar in, I want to say Reading. And I turn up. Now, you'll probably know this because you're a comedian. Zoe Lyons? Yeah. She yeah. was one of the other nominations. Wow. Tough lineup, to be fair. And I can remember so clearly, and this is kind of the naivety of it. I look back now and realise every other comedian on that night had done hundreds and hundreds of gigs. And when I said, This is my first gig, they looked at me like I'd landed from another planet. Like, shut up. No, it's not. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's brilliant. That just you see people say that at gigs sometimes, and you're like, no, it's not. But that is brilliant. That's a brilliant origin story. I love it. Go on. 
And so, yeah, so I did the gig and um, I can remember, I don't know about you, do you remember mm. the first time you did the gig where you could hear your voice coming out of the speakers? Yeah. And you think, oh, that's, I didn't think I sounded like that. That's my voice. <laughs> that kind of throws you, doesn't it, for the yeah. first gig? of like, oh, perhaps some first gigs, you haven't even got a microphone. But it was just, because it was a proper BBC thing, I was like, well, this is all very weird. But I was very much a kind of Jimmy Carr style one-liner comedian at that point. I just had jokes. I didn't know how to talk to an audience. Yeah, so I did that gig. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get through, obviously, because I was up against people who were clearly miles ahead of me in experience and talent. Yeah, so that was my first ever gig. And wow. for the first year, I did about six gigs, and most mm. of those were competitions because I just didn't know about mm. how you get gigs. And the first joke you wrote then, do you know what that was? Am I allowed to uh, be quite dark? Is that oh, okay as, with this? Go on as, mar- as far as you want, man. Okay, let me try to remember this joke. I haven't told a joke in a year. Um, <laughs> my granddad used to say that a problem shared is a problem halved. Mm. He died of AIDS, my granddad. <laughs> nice, nice. I don't do that joke anymore, but that was just a very Jimmy Carr-esque yeah. joke. I, yeah. Did you do that at the BBC? I did. Yeah, I did. That's brilliant. Um, you wouldn't get away with that now, would you? Wouldn't get through there. God, that wouldn't have got through. No. no. I mean, thinking back now, when I grew up, stand-up comedy was this alternative thing. It used to be on late at night after match of the day or mm. on random BBC Two programmes. It wasn't the mainstream thing it is now. So I think when I started, there probably wasn't that many comics applying to the BBC, whereas now I think there'd be a lot more. There'd be thousands. Mm. So I think possibly I got in just because numbers. So for the first year, maybe two years, I was doing one-liners, but I don't do them anymore. And what year was that you applied for that? 2004, 2005. Wow. Amazing, amazing first gig. So that was 2021. 20, wow. How many shows have you done, Dave? What, full-on? Like, yeah, like uh, festival I shows. Want, I want to say three. I know we've got like a wonderful name for one of the shows, which is Beige Against the Machine. What a brilliant name. I love that. Yeah, that, I don't know how you found like naming shows. Yeah. That told me a lot. So I did that at the Brighton Festival, which is a brilliant comedy festival, mm. which I hope comes back. And what I realised was, that's kind of a double-edged sword. It was really good at getting people in. Like the Saturday night show I did is the only show I've ever done where I had to start late because they had to bring in extra chairs. Brilliant. And I could tell, oh, it's people have been flicking through the brochure and it's a funny name, isn't it? And Brighton kind of gets that. And so that was good. But with reviews and critics, they, they used that against me. So because I'd used the word beige, they then kind of said, well, he's not doing anything different. He's not reinventing comedy. Mm. This is a kind of, you can see this kind of comedy in any kind of right. comedy club. And I kind of thought, well, yeah, I didn't say, the poster doesn't say I'm reinventing comedy. A very good lesson on like what you put out there. Sometimes mm. it can be twisted and put against you. Yeah, I was, oh, you worry about that as well, don't you? It's like, you know, um, especially with the name, they can really just, they can just twist it around your neck and strangle you with it, isn't it? That's what they can do in the reviews sometimes. Yeah, it's almost like an album, isn't it? Like the album title isn't really what the album's about. It's something to get people in the door or just some kind of tag. It doesn't mean yeah. that the show is all about that. I mean, there's many comedy specials I've watched on Netflix where I think, I don't understand why this title, why is this called this? Because yeah. you haven't, there's no mention of this. There's no story about this. There's maybe one joke in there that relates to the to the you know the theme. It's like you've got was it Norman? But yeah, Norm Macdonald. That's it. Hitler's dog, isn't it? And 
he's got a joke about Hitler's dog, and that's that's the only that's the only link. That's it. You know, it's funny, it's funny, isn't it? But did the audience like your your show, The Beige Against the Machine? Uh, the one on the Saturday night, I had a group of friends come. That mm. was again a kind of pivotal moment if we're talking origins. Mm-hmm. In that, well, the first Edinburgh show I did was I did half an hour, which is a standard thing, isn't it? You yeah. do half hour with someone else, mm. and that was brilliant. I mean, it was hard going and. Do you reckon Edinburgh will come back this year or will it be next year? I don't know, man. I don't know if I go up again, to be honest, Dave. I've just I had enough of it. I've been up four times and I, I don't know if it's going to do me any favours. In first, I'll tell you this now. Before last year, the lockdown happened, I was travelling all over just doing gigs, just enjoying myself travelling and just seeing different parts of the world and, and just, you know, seeing if the stuff works in different places. I, have, I was having a great time. But Edinburgh, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So in the answer to your question, I was like, I don't really mind if it does or not. You know, I know a lot of people use it. You know, it's, it's, it, it works for some people, but not for me. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm very similar. Mm. I've done three, maybe four Edinburgh. I think the first mm. one I only did two weeks. Mm. I just basically did other people's gigs right. just to get a feel of it. But I, um, similarly, I think every comedian should do it just because mm. you should. It's an incredible training camp. Like that month, yeah. I know that month I did. The first month I did really improved me as a comic mm. it was tough and halfway through i wanted to go home because you just live and breathe comedy there's no escapism you get up you go into the center and then it, that is your day yeah you're flyering you're doing gigs you're going to do other gigs it's just very intense but i didn't realize till i came away from the first edinburgh i did and then got to september october and other people were saying you've really improved you can see it you're just completely on it and yeah. just gone to another level because of that intense grind training for a month that's it but i get to a point now where i think as you say it's 20 grand at least mm. there's so many comics there and there's this thing called the internet mm-hmm. i think i think edinburgh used to be the only way or one of the main ways i'm not sure it is anymore you know there are very tech tech savvy kind of comics that come along who just bypass it completely and become very successful very quickly because they're very aware of how to find an audience online i'm not sure being in a basement in edinburgh in august and paying 20 grand for the privilege is gonna unless you've got a really unless you're an incredible amount of luck but also an amazing show kind of zeitgeist show that Mm. suddenly people get interested in and you get the i don't see how you can really profit from it in any way you know it's like uh, career wise or monetary wise you know it's like it's it's like it feels that it's made the model is made it's like a pyramid scheme it feels like <laughs> do you know what i mean some people get in and get out and get money other people are just are just the, the chumps i feel sometimes you know but as i say you're paying to to hone your craft up there for the first couple of years and i and i think that it's a necessary evil at the beginning Definitely. As I say, I, I would recommend anyone, you, to me, you've got to do it at least once mm. and, and got to do the whole festival. You've just got to, just an experience. It's Absolutely. an experience I'll remember all my life. Mm. But also, yeah, you're, I also think it's kind of um, earning your stripes. You yeah. come out the other end of a full Edinburgh, you're a comedian. Yeah. Doesn't matter how well, how well that Edinburgh went. Mm. If you're willing to go through that and come out the other side and carry on being a comic, you're a comedian, you're in. One bad gig isn't going to stop you. That's it. Where was your room in Edinburgh that, that first year? Again, this is perhaps says a lot about me. So I went the usual kind of free festival stuff. What I was offered, I thought, there's no point. 
And one thing I was offered was a football stadium that wasn't in Edinburgh. And I thought, well, no, that's I, I googled it and thought that it's like five miles from Edinburgh. That's not being part of the festival. Yeah. So I found my own venue. It was called, it was with, I think it was called Paradise something. Right. And they did musicals and drama. But I got the downstairs basement of their main theatre, but it had yeah. proper theatre seating, like 40, 50 seats. Oh, nice. Yeah, me and the other guy, that or the other two guys actually, that were doing the show, mm. were like, wow, I don't know how we've got this. Mm. But yeah, it was a, I was amazing to, I'm trying to remember what name it was. It was just off the Royal Mile, but I know that's pretty All much right. every gig. Yeah. But it was um, a hidden little gem. Nice. And well, we fly very cleverly. Um, are you any good at flyering? I get the impression you're probably quite good at flyering. I'm not bad, yeah. Sometimes we know you do your flyering, they see who you are there, and then they go to see your show and you're a different person. <laughs> I always feel really guilty because I remember getting this couple, yeah. like, I literally spent 20 minutes on them in, on the high street, yeah. got them in, and they sat right in my eye line, and I could see they were just having an awful time. Oh, no. I'd ruined their evening. Yeah. I know even though the gig was going all right and most of the room was laughing, I could mm. just see them. And I was like, oh, God. Uh, so what we did was, as soon as we got enough money in the bucket, we just went round and let people, I mean, you don't have to even let them. You know, when any, you turn a corner, someone flies you. Mm. Anyone we thought was good, we'd stop them and go, how much are you getting paid an hour? Okay, we'll pay you a pound more. And we got people to fly for us. And that seemed to really work. Because people think, oh, this person must be pretty good if they've got people flyering for them. And there is that depressing moment where you hand someone a flyer with your own face on it. It's just like, hi. It's like a kid going, look, I'm going to do a show in the front room. I made this. (laughs) If you're a performer, before a show, you should be thinking about the show. You shouldn't be standing in the rain till the last second, worrying about if the show's going to happen or not. It's not a good place to start the show from. It ruins the showbiz element to it, doesn't it, really? I mean, well, I say that my first Edinburgh uh, I did on my own was in the the marquee, they called it, but it was actually a tent in the Free Sisters, you know, the... Um, the oh, that's a good one. Yeah, well, you know what, right? I think it was nicer when it... I remember it was the, the yurt. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, I did oh. a, yeah, a, a compilation show there. Lovely, when it was the yurt. But now, when it was the, the marquee, it was just like at the night it became the uh, the outside toilet. <laughs> but I, my show was at f- uh, three o'clock in the day and the guy after me was just a clown who, so he was just doing mime and like about halfway through the run, he was like, I, I, I'm, I'm sick, I've got to go. Because it was like, it was so noisy. It was just like, you know, that was so distracting for everyone that came to the show. What, your show, what was the name of your show? When, the first one, the one you needed like a three-hander. Dave Bailey and Friends, right. Comedy Hour, something as awful as yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, who'd you do it with? Uh, Stu Richards. Do you know Stu Richards? Stu Richards. Yes, I do. And uh, Martin Byrne. Yeah. Who was a Scottish comic. Yes, I know him. It was amazing, right? So I was going to do a, the show with someone else. Mm. And then they had um, a problem. They had to have an operation. So they pulled out and we'd already set up most of the stuff. So it was that kind of moment like, oh, is this fate? Should I not do it? So then I, um, our good friend Chortle, you remember that? Yeah. That website? Yeah. Um, I put a post on there when they used to let you put posts on there. It was eye-opening because the stuff I was sent, I mean, Stu and mine were the best two by a distance. One person sent me a video of them like literally like a zoom call and 
it was just like watching a man have a nervous breakdown. And I was thinking, is this what you send promoters? Yeah. Is this your best? Or they they send me a video of them at some shitty open mic gig dying on their ass in front of four people. I think, is this your best video? You're better not sending a video because then I'll assume you're pretty good. Now I've seen that, no. (laughs) But yeah, Stu, I saw, yeah, I met Stu before. And I say Martin lived in Edinburgh, so that just made it easier because he was already there. Great. But they're two brilliant comedians. It's that great thing of doing it with other people that um, I can't imagine. Did you say your first one you did on your own? First one that I did on my own was in 2017. Uh, okay. But like my first one I did with was with, do you remember Nick Root? Oh, yeah. The name is yeah. ringing a bell. Yeah. Nick Root and Albie Flowers. Do you remember him? Oh, yes. We had that gig we had was the Jekyll and Hyde at quarter to 12, oh, okay. quarter to 12 at night. <laughs> For the whole month. <laughs> yeah, but, we were 10 o'clock to 11, and I oh. regret doing that. It's just on the cusp. I mean, it's incredible. Edinburgh on a Saturday night is a different mm. place, isn't it? Yeah. You walk into town going, it's going to be a fight. The yeah. whole of Edinburgh is going to be a fight. Once I stopped the show, the audience had been quite loud throughout, and I was supposed to do half hour, and about 10 minutes in, I just looked at them and went, they were being really nice to a degree. It's one of those audiences that just wanted it to be the show and I said look should we just go to the pub big cheer and I just stopped the show because I just thought there's no point you mm. can sit there politely for 20 minutes but we all just want to go to the pub so let's just do that yeah. so that was one Saturday and then one Sunday we cancelled it because it was really like properly Edinburgh raining and the streets were empty and we were standing in the rain and we just looked at each other and went this ain't gonna happen is it so we just but every other night we had audiences so nice that's good so what was the other shows you went to Edinburgh with there was Say Something, yeah, Basic Against the Machine, and then, uh, yeah, Dave Bailey and Friends. So the other other three were your own shows? Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, nice. Say Something was kind of about mental health, uh, the male suicide rate, which I know right. sounds like two great comedy subjects. <laughs> uh, Bage Against the Machine was basically a greatest hits of someone that hadn't released any singles, but, yeah, yeah it was basically, I just wanted to, get all my best bits into a show together which again I think looking back was a mistake because I think people were expecting from this show for it to be about politics and it wasn't I don't really do politics and I'm a, I'm a bit like you now I'm kind of um, I'm not well it depends what the festivals are like and if people are going to be allowed to stand next to each other I've kind of gone out the other side of festivals and now I've kind of before lockdown I've been doing a lot of 20 minute sets opening spots and just I've kind of gone away from doing a whole hour it's it's strange isn't it when I think back the thought of doing an hour mm. I just think that's impossible that's how are you going to remember all mm. that yet once you've done it a couple of times you realize actually mm. in many ways it's easier because you always feel like you're trying to cram stuff in if you're doing a 10 I mean fives I always struggle with fives mm. because as I think by the time you've got going you've got to stop and it's mm. unless you've unless you've got a really good one liner to start it's just, it's just really hard to get going and I actually find an hour or 20 minutes half hour less nerve wracking because I think it's fine I will have enough time for them to get me and for me to get them and me to do this at the pace that I want to do it and so I don't feel I'm rushing and which was your favourite show out of those three that you did well as a show I would say say something I felt like Although it's, it was quite common at the time, and it still is for people to talk about mental health issues mm. and serious issues, it felt like, oh, I've got to a point as a comic where I'm 
talking about subjects that aren't just silly subjects mm. and these are important as trite as it sounds i had a couple of people come up to me afterwards and tell me about especially men tell mm. me th- stuff about their life and i thought that's a nice thing that they've come out and they remember one they remember this show literally they were listening and they were taking something from it whereas sometimes it can fulfill a bit ethereal can't it? it's like, yeah. like well, yeah, we had a joke and a laugh but it's all gone now it doesn't really mean anything it's all just silly that's right but they found a bit more substance to that whereas the one where i did the first show with Stu and martin mm. that was fun but for a different reason it was like a gang so the three of us were putting a show on every night together because as ever with, with stand-up you can sometimes feel very isolated and like it's all on us to get everything in place we take all the joy we take all the heartache so it's mm. quite nice to be in a little gang of just it's us against them yeah very much so because you're very low energy dave aren't you um yeah i would well yeah but i i get easily distracted which right. probably this podcast is proving so if something happens in the room a number of people have said my face lights up great as if I go, yeah, now it's party time. And I yeah. walk and I go and I'm happy to derail my act <laughs> and put that to one side and go, okay, let's go over here. I mean, I, I from mem- I'm trying to remember the last time we did a gig together. Was it Canterbury? Would it be oh, yeah, it was Canterbury. Canterbury. Yeah, it was that far back, yeah. Because you're time, brilliant yeah. at that. You are brilliant of just owning the room. Within 30 seconds, you've got the room. It's in your back pocket and you're in charge. And uh, yeah, I would say I'm more, um, uh, yeah, slow burner. But if something happens in the room, then I'm kind of happy to play around and go, okay, let's let's do this then. This is happening now. Because yeah. I've seen so many acts where they have their act, they've memorised their act, and they're going to do their act. Mm. And you can tell the audience is fading away, they're not getting any laughs, mm. and the act is just doing their act. You think you're not in the room, you're not yeah. connecting with these human beings. Mm. They're not listening to you, you're just remembering stuff. That's why they're not laughing. You need to break out of your act yeah. and be presence in the room and uh, that's probably one of the many reasons why I stopped being a one-liner comic is I felt like I didn't need to be there I could write the jokes down on a bit of paper hand mm. them to the guy in the front and go pass that when you've read it to yeah. the next person along that's it and as a performer I just found it very boring mm. um, I remember seeing Jimmy Carr at um, Hammersmith Apollo and my favorite bits were when he wasn't doing one-liners when he was just talking to the audience or dealing with hecklers I thought this is brilliant but when the 10 minutes of him doing one-liners, you just get a bit fatigue of like, oh, yeah. da-da-da-da-da, set up, mm. pause, da-da-da-da-da, punchline. Do you think it just gets a bit too formulaic and like, I don't, once you work, it's like someone doing a crossword over, over yeah. and over again. You kind of go, I know how this works now. Yeah, that's right. I remember when I first started, I watched uh, Milton Jones and I could only get through about half an hour of it and I, my brain just, it just, I was, I've got to start watching this. I, I can't, I, I, I'm sure it's funny, but my brain has just, switched off i'm numb to it now it's very very hard to get through that every 15 minutes of one-liners you need a bit of a bit of a, a break for get a drink or something and a bit something to eat and then go back again with fresh eyes fresh ears it's just an incredible um also the other thing is i couldn't keep up the writing of that many one-liners it's so frustrating to work so hard on a one-liner and then go mm. well that's 10 seconds i need another 30 of those <laughs> yeah i mean your first gig was with the the BBC New Comedy Awards, right? It went well then, right? It did go well, apart from the fact that you didn't get through. It's. I look back now, and um, I didn't tell anyone. So apart from my best mate, who obviously was there when the phone call came through, mm. no one in my family knew that I'd gone off and done this. And, I mean, I've looked back on school books and stuff, and 
I wrote in my school books, you know, things you know, we have to put like where you want to be and all that stuff. And what job do you want to do? Which is yeah. a ridiculous question to ask any teenager. They don't know up from down, let alone what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Yeah. I'd written comedian, but it seemed so um, another planet. Like, mm. that, no, that's... I grew up watching comedy in the 90s. Yeah. And as I say, it was alternative and late night. Mm. And they seemed like magical people. I mean, you look back now and realise, actually, they're not. They're still some of my favourite comedians from that era. But it just seemed like such a... I'm such a comedy fan. Just the fact that I was doing it was like, oh, this is fun. Yeah. I didn't think I'd be able to do this. And then, so that's probably why that first couple of years I didn't really push it because I was like, oh, this is just a novelty. But it did feel good for someone at the BBC to go, well, you're funny. Yeah. And so it went well there. Did you remember your, when you were on stage that you, you enjoyed it? They laughed and had a good time? Or, or was it like, it, was it the quickening when you got up there on the stage? I could, I'd say I can remember hearing my voice, yeah. that threw me, but I didn't feel like I was out of my depth. And I often say this to like you know newer acts that come up to people like me and you when we've done gigs, mm. and they've just died on their ass, and they kind of look to us like we're some kind of professor. It's yeah. like, well, you aren't, you weren't funny. That's the main thing there, mate. Yeah. But well, what I say now is, in day to day life, like mm. ever since I was a little boy it's my natural inclination to go to funny. Yeah. I say things that pop into my head and people laugh and that's always been there ever since I was a little boy, all the way through school, jobs. I can just do it. So it found and found like, well, this, there are many areas of my life where I feel out of my depth, low self-esteem, no confidence. With comedy, for some reason, it's always just been like, no, I, I'm, I'm, the evidence would suggest that I can do this. Great. And, um, I mean, we've all had gigs where you die on your ass, but, yeah. I'm consistently enough getting laughs. What I did feel on stage, which again perhaps links to the one-liner stuff, mm. in those first 20, 30, 40 gigs when I was doing one-liners, I felt, I, as I say, I, that I wasn't there, that I was telling jokes, but there was a different part of my brain watching me going, you're funnier than this, Dave. You're funnier than that joke. If you just said something now. And I can remember the first few times of people heckling, or something happening in the room, and me reacting, and suddenly hearing a different laughter, of like a proper guttural laughter, not yeah. just a polite, oh, that was amusing, but a proper, I'm thinking, oh, I want that. That's mm. the laughter I want. That proper, in the moment, proper from the deep gut, as opposed to a kind of, oh, that's, yeah, I can see what you've done there. Oh, that's a yeah. clever play on words. That's so it. probably that all played away in me I've been listening to this podcast. I mean, you've had some incredible guests. I feel honoured, by the way. Especially Adam Bloom. Wow. Yeah, Adam Bloom is one of my all-time favourites. Brilliant. Um, well, amazing yeah, job I'm writer. interested in, when I love comedy, mm. in that what makes you become a comedian, I find fascinating. Because you must have met people. I've met so many, especially on open mic nights, where you think, why are you here? Who has told you you're funny? Where is this coming from? Some of the least funny people I've ever met have been at comedy nights. Some mm. of the funniest people I've ever met have been at comedy nights. But you just think, some people, what's your, well, how are you here? But also the style of people. Like, why are you doing that style of comedy? Why is it? Why have you landed on that? Or that comic that we've all met in the green room, mm. who is hilarious, holding, holding court, mm. telling stories, being hilarious. Mm. They go on stage, 
they're the least funny person in the room. And you think, what happened there in that five steps? You haven't taken, you clearly got something, but you're not doing that on stage. I think that's what I realised doing one line is like, I can do this, but it's not where my natural funniness comes from. So I, it probably put me back a couple of years in that I was getting decent gigs doing that, but I thought, yeah, but I don't enjoy this. This yeah. The other side where I'm mucking about and being a bit more in the moment and saying things that I think and feel and have observed, that feels more me. Mm. And I can just feel the connection with an audience more that way. Mm. And I'm getting more out of it. So You've been going since 2004 then, right? So tell me one of your, your worst gig then. What is the gig that you just go, you look back and go, oh my God, this is horrific. There's so many to choose from. <laughs> oh, well, I know, I know. Okay, yeah, because this one still haunts me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was down in Brighton. It was a Mexican restaurant. Right. And it was about half five. And I walked in, and it's a full restaurant. People eating away, everything. I walked to the back of the room, and there's this little guy who looks like he could be from a sitcom. Right. Broken English. And I said, oh, it was comedy, comedy? And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wait there. So I stood at the bar. I stood at the bar for a good 10 minutes and I was thinking, oh, perhaps I'm a bit early. Is this probably a room upstairs or downstairs? Okay, fair enough. Then all of a sudden he goes behind the bar, grabs a mic, like a karaoke mic. <laughs> it's, you know, when it's so loud that it's vibrating, yeah. just echoing, it's painful to hear. And he screams into it, comedy, and then hands me the mic. Oh, and no. there's just a restaurant. There's no stage. There's a restaurant. There's also kind of jingly jangly Mexican music being played yeah. in the background. Great. No one has turned to look at me and I'm there going, um, is this happening? Wow. So I started talking, mm. but obviously I don't know if a lot of people in the room weren't English wasn't their normal language, but um they were just ignoring me. Yeah. So I did probably it felt like five minutes, probably a minute, and then I looked across at the guy and went, Sorry, can you turn the music down? And he kind of went, Uh and he went to turn the music down and he turned it up. So now it was like really loud, like ear bleedingly mm. loud. <sighs> yeah. Then all the people turned around and started moaning at me. <laughs> like I was like somehow this was my act. I was some yeah. kind of avant-garde act where I was trying to make everyone listen to me. And I looked across and went, mate, can you turn the sound off? He went, Ugh. And he was just fiddling away. Yeah. And I looked around at the room and I thought, oh, this is mental. What is happening? Yeah. And it's daylight outside. Oh. And I'm thinking, is this a dream? <laughs> at this point, I'd done hundreds of gigs and thought, I thought I'd seen it all. And then in a split second, I don't walk off stage, but I wasn't on stage. I just <laughs> looked at the mate. I looked at this guy and handed him the mic and went, this isn't a gig, mate. Grabbed my bag and just walked straight out. And just yeah. two seconds later, I was walking down Brighton and thinking, did that happen? Well. And then even better, as I was walking back to my car, I bumped into another comedian who was on their way to do that gig. <laughs> did you warn them or did you let them go? I warned them and they still went towards the venue. Oh. That is what com- that's how mental us comedians are. <laughs> oh, Dave's exaggerating. So yeah. God knows what that poor person walked into. Man, played an Indian restaurant years ago, when I, like maybe about two years in or something, and I was very, very new. And like exactly the same setup. There's no focal point. 
we got free curry. That was the only plus, plus of the whole thing. That was our rider. And there was no payment, just curry. And I was like, fine. I think it was like, there was a couple of more seasoned comics like, I could see him eating his curry really quickly and I was like, well, why, why, why are you getting that curry down here so fast? He's like, well, look, I've seen this gig like already, <laughs> you know, we've got to eat our food quick before they realise that this is not a gig and it's going to go horribly. So, you know, they're not going to pay any more out or give us any more free stuff. They're going to kick us out as soon as possible. But yeah, they didn't have it again, weirdly. Yeah. That's what I love about comedians though as well. So that guy and we know something is like we've done it when you've done it enough you can walk in and feel it can't you and go mm. this is going to be one but we don't walk away we go <laughs> well i'm here yeah you know they're paying me or you know i feel like i should at least give it a go or you know it'd be rude to leave or we still put ourselves through it knowing what's about to happen yeah. although i've had the flip where you think oh this is a bad crowd i remember i've seen a group of lads once i mm. thought well they're going to be trouble i was like could hear them at the bar thinking oh god and that was in my head when i went on stage so I deliberately didn't look at them. I just, other side of the room. They laughed more than anyone else that night. And then afterwards came over to me and were saying nice things. And were some of the nicest people I've ever met. And that was a real lesson of like, don't judge people, Dave, before you start. That's it. The friendly looking person over there could be a right arsehole. And the guy that looks like he's going to headbutt you could be a lovely man. Don't yeah. just let the audience be the audience. That's it. And then we'll, we'll work it out afterwards. But don't judge them before you've even started. That's right, man. That's right. In the years of doing it, there's a question I ask everyone, right? If you listen to the podcast, you know I ask this question. It's a difficult question. But Sean Mio, for example, when he goes on stage and around the country, he sees himself as like a gun for hire, like a gunslinger, if you like, you know, like uh, or a ronin for hire. What do you see yourself when you go on stage as, you know, I've had some things like IT technicians, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it could be anything, it could be a, a job, it can be a mythical creature, like the kind of model potentially you build your comedy persona on. So what, how do I perceive my, the version of me on stage? Yeah, and you can disappear up your own arse completely, don't worry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I would say the version of me on stage yeah. is the relaxed Dave as weird as that sounds mm. in that when I've kind of maybe had a couple of drinks or I'm with friends that I've known for a long time I it's you'll get kind of a hundred percent me I will say exactly what I think because that's the other thing with stand-up I found is that in polite conversation like social obedience you don't want to take control of it do you so mm. you'll be funny you'll say something funny and then you'll back off a bit and let someone else have a go or say something Although it does amaze me when people tell stories and they're not funny. Does it amaze mm. you? You think, yeah. you just died on your ass. Why did you waste three minutes of our time telling us that story? Yeah. You literally just went to the supermarket. Why are you telling me that? So I think, yeah, it's the, kind of the best version of me, which in day-to-day -day life, you would find annoying after 10 minutes. But on stage, it's allowed to happen. I'm allowed to ex um, exaggerate. I'm allowed to go to the third joke, the fourth joke. I'm allowed to act it out. I'm allowed to be a little bit more cocky than I would be in normal life. I mean, I've done gigs in pubs where I, if I was walking past and needed a piss, I'd piss myself rather than go into that pub and use their toilet. Mm -hmm. But if you put a microphone in the corner, <laughs> I will go in and I will be as confident as you like and try and, you know, own the room. And I've said things to people from stage, which I would never say to them in day-to-day -day life. I wouldn't have the confidence or the... As I say, social obedience, you think, oh, I can't really say that. But for some reason, in a comedy gig, you can. It's kind of everyone's in on the joke, hopefully. So I kind of like the version of me on stage. But he would be exhausting 24 hours a day. He, or even as your mate, you'd go, all right, Dave, calm down. 
it's kind of what I'm finding now is that I miss that version of Dave. It's kind of a release. So my day-to-day life, I'm it's all going on in the background and then I get to go on stage and it all kind of comes out and I get to be that character for a little while and then come off stage. But it is still built on me. Do I answer the question? That's fine. Not everyone uses models to kind of picture themselves as the comedian soul, if you like. You're just the, the Dave on a good night out sort of thing, yeah? Yeah, and also, yeah, based on what you just said, I'm very much of the view that this is all silly. So when I come on stage, I'm not someone who's going to go, oh, let me tell you about the world. I've, I've read some books. Oh, the, the systems, the man. Let me tell you about the man. The man's ruining everything. Mm. I'm kind of, I've always gone on with that slight kind of twinkle in my eye of, this is all a bit silly, isn't it? I mean, you've mm. come out to listen to someone speak for an evening and I'm just going to say some silly things now and then we're going to go on with the rest of our lives. It's... I, as much as I take it seriously, I kind of realise this is all just a bit silly and it's, you know, we're all going to get up tomorrow. It's all just not life and death. It's not, and I've, I don't know if that's me trying to make it justifiable to me. So it's, I'm more relaxed and if I'm more relaxed, I perform better. I certainly want people to have a good time, but there is a part of me that is a bit of a git. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps this is why I'm certain ways of, I've had other comics say to me, about like dealing with hecklers and stuff I sometimes really take it personally mm-hmm. when the gig is going well and some arsehole is trying to ruin it for everyone mm-hmm. if I'm ruining it for everyone that's on me I put myself in this position if I'm not being funny that's mm-hmm. all on me mm-hmm. but this is going well everyone else is having fun I know I'm doing my job and you're trying to ruin this then mm-hmm. I become a bit more mm, no if you're not enjoying this, go, leave. It's, it's not for you to derail this for everyone else. So yeah. there's kind of a mixture there of wanting to please, but also a feeling of kind of self-worth of like, no, I know this is good. Yeah. It's fine. I know I've done these jokes before. There's enough evidence to suggest that these things I'm saying now are funny. Yeah. So sometimes you kind of think, yeah, well, I know comedy is subjective, mm. but certain people you kind of think, yeah, you could have Billy Connolly here right now and you won't be laughing. I can see yeah. in your eyes there's something yeah. else happening here. You've just come out to... It's like kind of Twitter trolls, isn't it? You just yeah. kind of think there's, there's another ulterior motive here. Maybe they're just filled with fear and they can't do it themselves is what it is. I think generally, you know, they're cr- maybe a very creative person, but they haven't pursued it because they're still afraid. They just can't get off that mind loop they're just stuck on. They come to see comedy because they must love. they might love comedy, but... They're like, it's just watching you going, I could do that. Well, then fucking do it, mate. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> what are you like um, after, after gigs? Energy-wise, can I sleep? That kind of thing? Um, yeah, the, uh, the adrenaline. But also, um, are you very, are you like hypercritical? Or are you um, like- oh, like I used to write a diary on every single gig up to about, um, about up to about 900 gigs. I started, I write, wrote a little small, like, you know, um, bullet points of whatever went well and whatever it was and I was like then after that after 900 I was like this is getting ridiculous now I know how it went I know what I need to do I don't need to do this anymore <laughs> so I was hypercritical yeah I was so desperate to get it right get it perfect and then and then I kind of went well you know what right the best of what you said before I think you you have the great attitude when you go up there you go I, you know I know this works and I, it, it kind of you need to kind of hope it goes well but not try to control it and just kind of go up there you've done the work just throw it away you know you, you can't control everything yeah it's something i've learned it, it took a depressingly long time to learn is the being funny bit should be a given 
basically. Mm. And that's the, to me, that's the fun bit. Writing the funny bits is the fun bit and the performing. But what's key is is looking confident and not arrogant, but confident. If you look like you know what you're doing and speak in a tone, an audience relaxes and goes, oh, this person, we're comfortable. However, if you come on not confident and don't look them directly in the face or, you know, general direction, or you just parrot the stuff you've learnt at home and mm. not engaged with anything, I think that's when the it starts to go downward very quickly. If you're yes. in the room confident, it took me also took me a long time to realise that it's so much easier to do gigs with better comedians because you're walking out into a happy room. If you can follow five people that aren't aren't funny at an open mic night, then you can definitely do a comedy club because you're walking into a happy room. They assume you know what you're doing until you prove you can't. So go on confident. You got picked for Pick of the Fringe Brighton show, right? Twice? I think it might have done, yeah. And uh, you, I mean, you've got a quote here as well. It says, "Definitely funny." Gosh, you've really done your research, haven't you? Every, every. Oh, I, know, I, know, I know we're in lockdown. But uh, def- Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely funny and loads of good gags. BAFTA. Where's that from? Well, you know how some of us comedians <laughs> kind of use uh, quotes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I wrote a sitcom oh. for a BAFTA competition, and uh, it got through a couple of rounds, but it didn't get anywhere after that great but as part of getting through you get a report back like a writer's report from the people judges that have read it brilliant and so some of the quotes yeah i've used because i thought having the word bafta on a poster would be useful amazing that's great man if you hawk that sitcom around any other places oh i've written so many sitcoms my laptop yeah. is full of sitcoms amazing yeah i mean i found that now in lockdown i've suddenly realized are you writing a lot in lockdown i wrote a sitcom in the first lockdown uh second lockdown I just kind of went, okay, fine, whatever. And then and then put together my next show, which is a bit darker, because I did Squeaky last two years, so I did a clean show. And then, because I wanted to see if I could test myself to write a clean, full clean hour. And that was fine. And then I was like, okay, I, as you said, you know what you were saying, you said earlier when you're like, you're doing some stuff, you go, okay, this is fine, it works, but I want to go a little bit more darker into, the, into my soul. And then... Yeah all the stuff started bubbling up randomly. When I was writing the clean, I was like, oh, this is this is clean, but this is horrific clean. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, this is interesting. Um, okay, I can maybe work on this. And so I p- put it all into a new hour. That was what I did in lockdown two. For lockdown three, the last week or so, I've done about three days of, uh, what is it called? Uh, like uh, current affairs stuff. Okay. Yeah. And I've been just sort of like writing, writing one-liners for that and... Uh, and just sort of maybe because I want to, I want to kind of get some writing, other writing credits under my belt, you know. Just kind of send stuff off to Newsjack, and I've got a couple of jokes on the Hoff Po. Yeah, I mean that's um, very similar. You kind of send stuff out into the ether. And yeah, it's so hard. But I found the first lockdown, I had an incredible writer's block like oh. never before. And I don't know if it's because I suddenly thought you now got all this time you should be writing, and mm. I felt incredibly guilty. But I was like. I can't think of anything funny. Nothing feels funny at the moment. Yeah. I'm not gigging, so I'm not going to match fit. As the year went by, and certainly the start of this year, I've suddenly just got loads. I mean, my phone is full of ideas. Great. I've I've got at least 20 new little bits. I mean, nice. they're not all going to work, but when we finally, hopefully, ever get back to doing stand-up again, I've got all these new bits. And I suddenly think, oh, that's... If I was gigging all the time and had my day-to-day life, I don't yeah. think I'd have the time to have come up with all this stuff. So there's kind of a blessing in that. And it's also like my brain is in the background going, Dave's going to need this when we get back to doing gigs. So yeah. I'll churn it out now. 
little bits pop up and, and sometimes you're getting time to go through your notes to go, actually, that's a really good bit. Why haven't I put that? Oh, yeah, that's great. I'll put that in with the other stuff with, and then it'll, it'll percolate. And then I think that the little bit of separation from your material re-energizes the joy for the art, really. Yeah, especially because before lockdown, I was doing a lot of 20-minute opening sets. Mm. And you, you kind of, especially if you're getting paid, you yeah. feel like an obligation to, like, I've got a, I can't do new material. They're, yeah. they're paying me to do 20 minutes. That's so right. you have, this is the bit I start with, and yeah. I do this bit, and I always end with this bit. So you kind of get, it's almost a job at that point. We kind of think, well, I've got an obligation for 20 minutes, and I'm not going to mess about, because I could try a new bit in the middle. Yeah. But if that five minutes goes bad, it's going to look bad and I might not get another 20 minute opening spot. So right. I need to smash it. But as you say, lockdown means I can now look back and go, actually, I think that bit of material is better than that bit in the 20. So I can yeah. take that out. You get to play around with it, which if you're gigging all the time, I think that time to do that. You get locked on, don't you? Have you written loads of sitcoms? Do you submit them to the BBC and stuff all the time? or? I've got one at the moment for a radio thing. It's just a competition thing, yeah. which I wrote at the end of last year. And I've shown it to a couple of friends in that. And mm. assuming that it doesn't go anywhere with this competition yeah. because of the terms and conditions, they have right to it, don't they, until the end of the competition. Right. I kind of, I've reread it a couple of times and gone over it and thought, actually, mm. of all the things I've written, I really like this. This feels like, I, I can see this as a, as a you know, comedy fan, TV mm. I can hear this I can I mean it's not perfect but as a first draft there's something in this so I'm thinking again depending on how this year goes gig wise it's Mm. like I'm gonna really try and write more episodes of this and try and get something going with this maybe look to do it myself online if that's possible because it kind of feels like and I'm fairly sure I've written enough of these scripts now to think this is a good premise and I think I can see this working. So, um, yeah, that's that's that side. And I say mm. on the stand-up side, well, when's the last gig that you did? Well, after Ease, you know, after lockdown one, we had a bit of a breathing space in September and I had a gig in Hungerford Comedy Club. It was in tennis courts up in Hungerford. And I think that was, I think that was October. And how was it? So that was outside? It was actually really nice. It was actually lovely. We all took our own mics. Adam Bloom's closing... Uh, myself, um, oh, uh, Lee Hudson was opening. I was in the middle. They were a lovely crowd, kind of uh, all separated, socially distanced and everything. And uh, yeah, it was in a tennis court, man, with some decent speakers. It was great. Yeah, because I was a bit apprehensive because I hadn't gigged since March. And mm. I did a first couple back in, I think, yeah, the end of September was, yeah. was we were allowed to, wasn't it? Mm. And our last gig I did was just before lockdown too. So I think October, late October. Um but I was doing yeah, a number of gigs with the same promoter and um, I was very kind of, I'm not sure people are ready to laugh and it was indoors but socially distanced yeah. and people wearing masks and it was just a very surreal standing at the back of the room thinking this feels, you know, I've done yeah. hundreds, probably over a thousand gigs, this mm. feels different. Really, and it's the longest since I started that I haven't gigged same. and you can only go, right, I have to remember how to do this. Within 30 seconds, all of my fears were allayed because I was like, they were laughing so hard. You know those gigs where you think, I'm funny, I'm not this funny. (laughs) They were determined to have fun. Brilliant. And any kind of morsel of humour, they were grabbing hold of it. Mm. 
and it was an absolute joy. And I just thought, oh, this is good. All that's horrific that's happened in the last year, it feels like audiences are now really, really want to laugh and really determined to have a good time and some stupid mask isn't going to stop them or some virus. Yeah. So that's kind of kept me going. I think, oh, when we do hopefully get back this year, I have a feeling audiences are going to be really up for it now. That's great. Yeah, they need the comic relief, man. Yeah, they're just lives have been paused and we need to all laugh at something, don't we? we need to just kind of let it out, man. It's uh, We're all been frustrated the last couple of years or so. Well, it's come on in two years now, isn't it? So, um, but It's also really made me appreciate, because you can get blasé with stuff, can't you? Yeah. Kind of the, the privilege of doing it. Absolutely. And what I get out of it. I don't know about you, sometimes I think, why am I doing this? Why do I need to stand up in front of strangers? Yeah. But I've kind of come to a good place where I think, no, I do this because I really enjoy doing it mm. and I seem to be quite good at it. So why would I not do it? You see, I see some people and I think, you you know the acts, whenever I've seen you, you look like you're having the time of your life. I mean, you may be an incredible actor, but you have look like you have the time of your life and you completely own a room. But some acts you see and they're being sick in the toilet and they look like pale as anything, mm. and then they go on, and they're not very good, mm. and then they come off, and then two days later you see them at another gig, you think, why are you putting yourself through this? What are you getting from this? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think I've come to a place now where I, hopefully when we get back to comedy, I'm going to really appreciate it and really kind of be a bit more focused on, like, no, this is good. Even, even the bad gigs, this is a privilege to do this. Yeah, totally. You walk back to that uh, Mexican restaurant and go, uh, when's the next show? <laughs> I would never, ever go back to that gig. I, mean, uh, yeah. I, say, I don't, I, I usually, what are you like at, um, when the gig's going bad? Do you stand your ground oh, or do you? I, I tell you, okay, I'll give you an example for when a gig has gone really bad for me. Um, the one that would make sense in, in this country, I had a gig in, uh, down in the West Country somewhere, it was, Brexiteer country and I made a little silly joke it wasn't even a, a, a political joke I'm not a political comedian at all and it was a silly joke about about Brexit but as soon as I mentioned the word Brexit it was my opening line it was like oh fuck I, I dug myself a giant bottomless pit to try and get out of and I spent like the next I was opening I spent the next 19 minutes trying to dig my way out of this hole it, it was one of those gigs when all the seats are set up and they're basically everyone's facing each other but they're on long tables, if you know what I mean. Oh, God, yeah. They were already pissed off the food hadn't arrived. I went off with a Brexit joke. Then they hated me for the next, I say, 17 minutes. I made them laugh. And I, I didn't really carry, carry it well, to be honest, that time. I was just, it was a battle. When they laughed, I was like, didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. I was, I was basically vomiting bile on myself and destroying my own act. You know, I was like, oh. It, but I learned, I learned a lot of that gig. It was so silly, you know. I was just like, I made it a hard gig that didn't have to be but I, I decided to drop that joke forever <laughs> probably for the best yeah but it was like it's a weird mix isn't it I've had that right if they're not going to go for that material mm. that's kind of my that's what I do and it's that weird thing of like right okay I'll try another bit and see okay mm. and if you think oh that's quite a strong bit and they're not really going for that yeah. and you think I've got 15 more minutes here yeah right uh so I tend to, at that point, throw my act out the window. Oh, yeah. And just kind of MC and just kind of go, okay, let's see what you've got in the audience. Yeah. And try and think, well, let's be funny that way. I remember seeing this really posh, I think he went to Oxford, mm. 
proper what you would imagine and um he had pages and pages of of um, stuff of material mm. that he was reading backstage i was thinking it's mm. too late now mate you should know this <laughs> and he went out and a bit like you he was talking about politics yeah and it was like a proper working men's club oh no like people in west hampshire so i was thinking don't yeah, yeah. you already look like a posh boy yeah and he kept talking to them about politics. Oh, oh. You don't like the politics, do you? Oh, yeah. Take the hint, innit? Mate? And he's like, you don't, mate doesn't sound right in your mouth. And he went on for 45 minutes. Oh, my God. People were getting up, going out, oh. going to the bar. And I was like, you've got to tap out, mate. Yeah. You, you need a plan B here. You either acknowledge that you're dying and get off the stage. Yeah. Or you talk to the audience and just be human and say, this, you know, this, this isn't my world. I'm, yeah. I'm from a very upper class world. I don't even know mm. there's a raffle tonight. You can't even, you've never been to a raffle, have you? That's you just it. get everything for free. So it's just like at some I always struggle with that. It's like, no, but I have come here to do an act. Yeah. But these people aren't going to enjoy the act. So at some point there has to be a okay, put that away and let's just I have an obligation to some degree to the promoter and I don't want to die on my arse. Yeah. I've tried, I've had two goes. Yeah. That bit's the strong bit. That didn't even get anything. Yeah. My only other option now is to kind of go a bit off piece and let's just see what happens in the room. Yeah. I'm, I'm fairly sure I can get something better than you're getting from the material. I sometimes think that by derailing myself or going, okay, I'm going to put my actor on side and let's just mm. see what happens in the room. In that moment, it's good but it's not making me a better all-round comic and it's not finding me an audience of perhaps... Perhaps if I stuck to my act, some people would hate it, but more people would love it because I've stuck with it as opposed to kind of just playing to everyone and being a bit broader. It's harder to kind of stand out that way, isn't it? Yeah, I guess no so. Intended. Have you been writing a new show in the lockdown, apart from the sitcoms? Well, I've got two 20-minute sets, which I can do pretty much... I mean, it's amazing the memory recall that I didn't mm. gig for months. And then when I started getting some gigs in the diary, I kind of got my notes out and it automatically my brain went, oh, this is this bit. As soon as I did the first mm. line, yeah, that we're off again. So I've got those two 20-minute sets. But like you were referring to, I've kind of got, stepped back from them and gone, is that, I think I can do funnier than that. Mm. I think I can make that joke better. Or I think this new material would fit in there perfectly. And I think it's funnier. So I think what I, as opposed to writing a whole new hour, I think the other side of this, I'm just going to look to really beef up my 20 minute sets, mm. half hour sets and have it just really tight. Really like every bit of material has got to justify its place. Mm. It's not just there to eat up the time. It's there because it's the best bit of material I've got for that bit. You launched into TikTok yet or? Uh, I'm not that good at technology, but... There are, as I say, with the sitcom, I am thinking if I reach out to people that perhaps are better at this or know more of it, I've, I'm thinking there are other ways, social media ways of promoting whatever it is that I do because I, I, I really struggle with that. The networking side, it just feels grubby. Mm. I mean, so much so that I can have a really good gig, right? I won't say I smashed it because I hate when people say that, but I can have a good gig, right? <laughs> I've got consistent laughs for whatever time I was supposed to do, perhaps one or two applause breaks, and there's a couple of people who wanted to say nice things to me after the gig, right? So to me, that's enough evidence. I had a good gig. I still now feel really awkward going to the promoter and going, 
so can I come back and do another one or perhaps do longer or mm. can I headline that conversation I just feel really I don't know are you good at that stuff I just... yeah the schmoozing it's just you feel I'm either too keen or like I'm not talking to them I'm gonna just I don't I just don't want to go and bug them or be that idiot oh god yeah I'm, I'm sure many people that we both know mm. have thought that of me I, mean, I think email's the best yeah as you say it's grubby because there's no kind of set rules as well. You kind mm. of like I don't know how this. It's the weird thing with stand-up comedy. Kind of, I don't know how this works. All, all we have to do is be funny. That's evidence for everyone in the room. So you kind of think. Um, you kind of not, perhaps again naively think, well, the promoter can see I did well because they were in the room and people were laughing. So mm. isn't it on them to come back to us? But then yeah. do we have to push. Obviously, we have to push ourselves forward. I mean, I've seen some really confident people around promoters, and I look at them and think, but you were average at best then. But they have such a swagger about them and confidence that they seem to somehow be able to just go up to a promoter and just, you know, literally diary in hand and kind of catch the promoter off guard. Um, I mean, I did have one where, um, have you ever had this? this? This really kind of plays with your mind. So it's all kind of subjective, isn't it? But you can hear laughter so you can you can tell if something's going well or not just generally yeah. in life you come off stage you think i've had a good gig there that was that was mm. fun then the promoter comes up to you and pulls you to one side and tells you about all the things you didn't do well so yeah. you, know, you need to do this you need to do that this uh that did it you think right sorry what and you, i'm never sure how you because i would take that from another comic yeah but from, from uh, someone who's just like not a comic promoter an actual promoter i think yeah. Right. I kind of feel like I should be listening to you because you're a promoter, but you're also just a promoter. And yeah. I've, I'm a comic, and yeah. I know my act, and I know when I've done well. Or, and they were laughing. So, I, is it that I'm not the comic you want me to be? Which is fair enough. It's, yeah. it's your night. If you don't want the kind of comedy I do, fair enough. Don't put me again. But are you, are you trying to mould me into a comic that you want to see? That's a different thing, isn't it? I struggle with that. Like, feedback's good. But I think you have to have some kind of self-worth to go, no, I, I, I'm I, in charge of this. And yeah. I kind of, otherwise I think you'd kind of go down a, a dark hole of kind of constantly changing the style yeah. of comedy you do. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this might be taking it too far, but mm. a comedian I don't find funny, mm. if they come up to me to talk about comedy mm. or ask, you know, suggest something about my act or ask about their act, mm. I will happily talk to them and happily listen to their advice because they're a comic. And they've been there on the front line. When someone who's not a comic starts giving you feedback, I struggle with that to go, well, you don't know. You have Until you stood up there in that light with that microphone and tried this, you don't know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You yeah. haven't got the, uh, you haven't paid your dues, man. That's what it is, eh? And also we are kind of, if you if you were a comic and you did stand there, you would know how fragile we are yeah. and how hypersensitive we are. Yeah. Because in that situation, you just are. You feel everything. So you would know that feedback like this doesn't help, certainly straight after a gig. That's it. Because it's like trying to explain to someone how to drive a car after a car accident. It's like, not now, because I'm still going through this. The adrenaline's still through my body. I don't even know what I just said. Yeah. I'm still processing all that. I won't know till I drive home what, I, what the gig was like, and probably not until tomorrow morning. So any any pearls of wisdom you give me now are not going to stay in my head because I'm just it's not taking anything in mm. at the moment so I'm going to ask you where can we find you um, I'm on Twitter at Dave Bailey comic uh, 
I'm tweeting a lot more at the moment. Again, mm. I think that's probably because I'm not gigging. And I also have my own podcast, if yeah, I can well, say that. Yeah, of course you can. What's it called? The, uh, the Mind Fart Podcast. Nice. Uh, it's like a weekly thing. It's mainly to do with new music. So I do that. And uh, I think this, again, I say I'm not going to promote myself. I think I've still got a Facebook page. But, Dave Bailey um, on Facebook at Dave Bailey Comic I Twitter. Think, yeah, it's always Dave, not David. So yeah, it must be Dave Bailey Comedian. Great. Probably Twitter is the easier one because I, I put the podcast out via Great. Twitter. Brilliant. Okay. Well, Dave, it's been a pleasure to speak to you for an hour and a bit, man, about comedy. And uh, hopefully when all thaws, we'll be gigging together. Well, yes, thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks for, as I say, thanks for uh, asking me to do this. It's an honour because uh, I've always been a fan. Well, thanks, Dave. Thanks for coming on, man. It was an absolute pleasure, man. And I look forward to the day we do gigs again together. Me too, man. Me too. And that was episode 106 with a very funny Dave Bailey. He's on Twitter as at Dave Bailey Comic. You can also find his podcast, which is called the Mind Fart Podcast. It's all over the place where you can get your good podcasts from. You can also follow us. We're on Facebook. You go to Facebook, type in the Comedy Defect Podcast, and you can like the page, follow the group. And also, if you like this podcast enough and you want to tell your friends about it, you can just share your favorite episode because it tells people where we are and what we're up to. And if you like this podcast, if you really like it and you want to donate, you can go to Patreon, type in the Comedy Defect Podcast and donate as much as you feel this podcast is worth. But if you can't donate, that's okay. As I said before, just share your favorite episode. It tells people where we are and what we're up to. That's all I'm going to say for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll be back with you at the end of February for the next episode which is a very funny comic. I've known him for a few years and he is absolutely killing it right now. It is of course the joke machine, the fantastic gag writer that he is, Don Biswas. And that's at the end of February for episode 107. And I hope you got through January all right. And uh, if you started up an exercise regime, you're stretching. You're not kind of killing yourself and hurting yourself too much. Look, you're supposed to enjoy it too, you know. And uh, I know there's more joy to be had uh, in the middle of February for Valentine's Day if you are with somebody or if you are not with somebody. Look, there are for and against for both sides of that coin. So look, <laughs> you know, try to be grateful for whatever side you're on. That's Anyway, look, that's that's in a whole can of worms there. Anyway, look, we'll see you at the end of February. Don Biswas, episode 107. Until then, well, happy new year, guys. <laughs>